Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, thrilled to uh, have you here. Thanks for making River Glen part of your uh, weekend. Before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about what we have coming up. We're entering a season which is just ideal for inviting someone new to uh, River Glen. Uh, you know, for example, next weekend, remind me what's going on next weekend. Easter weekend. It's going to be a big, big deal around here. It's a great opportunity. And so I want to walk through it with you just a little bit so that uh, we can be prepared uh, for it. We've got our three regular service times coming up next weekend for Easter. But since it's Easter, we're expecting almost twice as many uh, people. And so if you have flexibility in your schedule and the person that you're bringing doesn't care, you know, which service they go to, come to the Saturday at 5 or come to this service. We'll probably have more room in, in those two services. Now, I'm really looking forward to next weekend because we're going to show you some footage from Jerusalem of the empty tomb. And it was my favorite location. They, they let us come an hour before they opened up to the public. And so I got to spend an hour, you know, with the tomb where Jesus resurrected uh, all alone. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was one of the coolest moments of my life. And I can't wait to show it to you. So uh, make sure you're here. And next weekend we celebrate the resurrection of, of Jesus. But this is not just our weekend to celebrate. This is a great time to roll up our sleeves and reach out and invite some other people to be here. Because our mission around here is to make more and better followers of Jesus. And studies show that people are far more likely to say yes to church on a weekend like Easter if somebody invites them. And so don't miss this opportunity to uh, bring somebody with you and they get a chance to hear a clear presentation of the message about Jesus. Now, I know anytime I talk about inviting people, you know, some of us, we start sweating and our hands get clammy and we feel nervous because we don't want anybody to think that we're uh, part of a cult. And uh, I get that. And so let me just show you here exactly, you know, what to say to invite somebody to Easter services next weekend. Let's, let's take a look at this. This is really easy to say. If you don't have a church to attend this Easter, we'd love to have you join us. And notice, you know, we're not inviting people from other churches, okay? Uh, take those, take them off your list. Think about people who don't have anywhere to go and in, invite them. And then tell them that we've got three services over two days. And so if Sunday doesn't work for them, tell them to come on, on Saturday and uh, give them one of these invitation pieces. Take some of these with you. These are very helpful uh, tools to have. You can take as many as you want at the, at the door on your way out today. And tell them dress is casual. You don't have to wear an Easter hat. You don't have to wear an Easter bonnet. You know, just come as you are and have a great time. And then last, make sure you tell them we've got some baby chickens. Yeah, next weekend. We're going to have little little chicks on display in the lobby for little kids. Uh, because it makes it easier to invite families with young kids if they know their kids are going to have fun. And so tell them that we not only have great classes, we've got baby chickens in, in, on display in the lobby. And we also have a play area in the uh, kid, kid life uh, uh, space. And so anyway, be, we're grateful that you're going to be inviting someone and that you're going to be here next weekend. And so be praying about that. And then right after Easter, we're going to roll into a new series called You Asked For It. Some of you uh, knew that this is coming. We did a survey. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, participated last fall. We asked you, if you could ask God uh, any question, okay, what would you ask him? And we took all the results of the survey. We're going to answer the top four commonly asked questions, uh, one each weekend. And I'll tell you, these are tough questions, okay? You know, you River Glen people are cruel for making your pastors answer 
you know, these questions. We're not, but we're not going to avoid the tough ones. And so if you've got questions or you know somebody that's got questions about God, about faith, be sure to invite them to this series. During that series, we're going to take a break one weekend for a special guest speaker who played for the Super Bowl winning Green Bay Packers, Don Beebe, uh, one of the fastest men in the history of the NFL, is going is to be here as our uh, guest speaker. Are you excited about Don Beebe? Yeah, that's going to be great. It's going to be an awesome weekend. And uh, if you know somebody who is a Packer fan who doesn't go to church, invite them. Great opportunity. Don has a very inspiring message. Well, all right, today we continue this series called The Road. And this is week number four. We've been talking about how all of us are on this road, okay? And we all pretty much want to reach the same destination. We want joy. We want happiness. We want heaven. But along the way, we get detoured, and we don't reach our full destination. And so we've been looking at the final week of Jesus' life on the road in Jerusalem, marching toward the cross. And we've been learning how Jesus experienced the same roadblocks that last week that we experience our entire lives. The difference is he navigated them properly. And so we've talked about how Jesus handled uh, crowds and betrayal and dread. And next week we're going to talk about the destination of life and how Jesus leads us not just to the grave, but through the grave. But today we're going to talk about Another issue that has the potential to sideline every one of us, and that issue is the pain of loneliness. When you think about, you know, the ups and downs of our lives, when you think specifically about the downs in your life, the difficulties, the sufferings, there's a pain that can be worse than anything else, and that's the pain of loneliness. Now, sometimes it feels good to be alone. You know, maybe you like to read a book or go for a walk. Or go for a run by yourself. Sometimes Jesus would go off and enjoy some solitude with God. But loneliness is different. There's a huge difference between being alone and being lonely. I came across an interesting article about this study conducted by researchers from several universities. They discovered that the same regions of the brain that are activated when people experience physical pain, those same regions are also activated when people experience rejection or feel excluded by people that they love. In other words, heartbreak literally hurts. Loneliness literally hurts. Here's how Dr. Gary Collins defines loneliness. Loneliness is a painful awareness that we lack meaningful contact with others. It involves a feeling of inner emptiness which can be accompanied by sadness, discouragement, a sense of isolation, restlessness, anxiety, and intense desire to be wanted and needed by someone. What I like about this definition is it tells us that loneliness often partners with another emotion. And it kind of sneaks in to our life and it takes us off the road and into the ditch. For example, loneliness might walk in when you feel stressed out about a looming deadline at work. Loneliness might walk in when you're worried about a health issue. Loneliness might even walk in when you celebrate something. Maybe a child graduates high school or college and there's a lot of joy in that achievement, but the empty nest can feel devastating and lonely. Or loneliness can walk in when you feel a sense of rejection. Maybe a relationship comes to an end. Maybe somebody tells a joke at your expense 
and it goes too far. Maybe you don't get invited to a social gathering, and before you know it, you find yourself, you, you, you start telling yourself, you know, nobody cares about me or likes me. Nobody gets me. Nobody knows who I am. Loneliness can walk in anytime, but there are some stages, some seasons of life when we're actually more prone to loneliness. For example, elderly people. I read that 70% 70 of, of people who live in nursing homes never get visited by anybody. Sometimes stay-at-home moms struggle with loneliness because they spend their entire day talking with children rather than adults. We don't like to admit it, but, you know, men can suffer from loneliness. Some men chase their career and lack meaningful friendships. New residents can also struggle with loneliness. This one surprised me. According to one study, one of the loneliest groups are college students. They dive into their studies. They, they feel a lot of pressure. Oftentimes, they're trying to figure out, you know, who they are and their direction in life. And it can just feel overwhelming and create a deep sense of loneliness. Do you know that even animals, animals can struggle with uh, loneliness? Did you ever hear about the lonely frog? Yeah, a lonely frog called the uh, psychic hotline, and he asked the psychic, what does my future hold? And the uh, psychic advisor tells him, a beautiful young girl wants to know everything about you. And the uh, frog got excited and, and uh, asked, will I meet her at a party? And the psychic said, no, you're going to meet her in biology class. <laughs> yeah, lonely frog, you know. All of us deal with uh, loneliness. Experts talk about crowded loneliness. You could feel lonely sitting in a crowded restaurant. You could feel lonely sitting in the middle of a crowded church. And it doesn't matter if you're successful. Sometimes people just assume, well, if you're successful, you can't possibly feel lonely. But the higher you climb the ladder in your field, the fewer your peers, the fewer sympathizers, generally speaking, the fewer your authentic friends. Oftentimes, loneliness and success go hand in hand. And so all of us deal with loneliness. It doesn't mean you're strange or weird. In fact, even Jesus experienced loneliness. Look at what the Bible says about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering like one from whom men hide their faces. Now, you and I, we might never experience, you know, this depth of loneliness, this level of loneliness that Jesus did. But until we get to heaven, loneliness is going to be part of our life. And so we need to learn how to deal with it. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to take a look at how Jesus walked through loneliness in such a way so that you and I would never have to experience this kind of rejection and this kind of loneliness ourselves. Let me, let me catch you up to where we are. Last weekend, if you were here, we, we were in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday evening where Jesus prayed this intense prayer. And then the authorities came in and arrested Jesus. And they take Jesus up these steps to the house of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they held Jesus overnight, probably in a dungeon, in the basement of, of this house. And the next day... Jesus will undergo a series of six trials over just a few hours. The first three are religious trials. And the charges against him are not just that he claimed to be the Messiah, but that he also claimed to be equal with God, which was far worse. 
in their minds. And then Jesus will go through three different civil trials with Pilate and Herod and then back to Pilate again. Everything about this went against their normal proceedings and against their law. But they wanted to fast track Jesus through these trials because they wanted to execute him before the Sabbath started on Friday night at 6 p.m. In order to understand it better, let's go to Jerusalem and let's see where all this happened as Jesus goes to the cross and experiences loneliness. After being at Caiaphas house for the entire night, he's brought before Pilate the next day. He's standing right underneath the arch here near the Roman Praetorium. This is where Pilate offers the crowd the choice. They can have either Jesus or they can have Barabbas, a convicted known criminal. And it's at this point the crowd begins to chant, give us Barabbas crucified Jesus, the very crowd that just a few days earlier shouted, Hosanna, King of the Jews, has now turned and they decided they'd rather have a known criminal alive rather than Jesus. We're at the place where Jesus would receive a scourging or a flogging. It's this courtyard where he would be taken and stretched out, his arms suspended before him over a post to receive a whipping or a beating from the Romans that was usually given with the cat of nine tails. The cat of nine tails was a small whip with pieces of bone or glass or metal weaved in there. And the idea was not just to whip, but to wrap around the body and for the pieces to dig into the flesh so that when the hand was brought back, it would not only you know, cut but tear off the flesh. They only allowed this to happen 39 times because they felt that 40 would, would, uh, would, would cause a, a fatal injury. And 60% of the time, it was fatal, but uh, it wasn't fatal for Jesus. He endured it all. And now at this point in his life, he's been denied by one of his closest friends. He's been betrayed by Judas, and his disciples have deserted him. And he's a, at a point of exhaustion, physical exhaustion, and spiritual exhaustion as well. It's during this time that the soldiers begin to weave a crown of thorns together. They place it on Jesus' head. They probably use maybe a square of wood and press it down firmly on his already bruised face. Remember, his body's gotten so sensitive because of the hematohydrosis we talked about, and this would be excruciating pain. He's beginning to be beaten with sticks, they're mocking him, and he's being led away to be crucified. Matthew 27, 32 says, Along the way, uh, they came across a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. They went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Jesus is forced to carry the cross. Some think that he carried the cross beam, which would be about 75 pounds, and it's raw wood, and it would have been excruciating on his, on his, on his raw back. And he makes his way down the Via Della Rosa, the street he takes to the crucifixion, but he continues to fall because of the, the, the weight of it and, and because of all that he's been through. And so this man from the crowd is forced to carry that part of the cross for him. Suddenly the streets are filled with people that once yelled, you know, Hosanna, but now they're crying out, crucify me, as they head toward Golgotha. We're standing in front of Golgotha, which you can see behind me. The phrase means place of the skull, and you can see the eyes carved out of the stone, which is believed to look like a skull, which it kind of does. And this is the place where Jesus was crucified. They bring Jesus up there, and with assistance, the cross is carried. The, the, the piece of the cross that he's carrying is now attached to the upright piece 
and they nailed Jesus to the cross. The nails don't go through the hand, but instead go right through the wrist, often referred to as the hand. And this is for a couple reasons. One, it severs the median nerve, which brings searing pain all through the arms and shoulders. But also, it holds together better to keep the person from falling off the cross. It's put into each hand. And then his feet are nailed to the cross. There was a little stand toward the bottom of that upright beam, and his feet were turned sideways so the spike would go through them together. Jesus is hung on this cross, probably stripped naked, unlike what our current pictures tell us. And he's put on display for the entire world to see. Matthew 27, verse 34 says, the soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. And they had nailed him to the cross. After they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Most of us tend to think that on this place over here, the place of the skull, that Jesus was crucified at the top of it. But typically crucifixions were done in, in such a place where people could walk by and see the individual being crucified, where they were only a few feet above the ground. And this was done for several reasons. One, the charge against the individual being crucified was nailed to the cross above their head. It's interesting, other people would have various criminal charges, but Jesus is simply just King of the Jews. That's it, that's all they could say. It was also done this way so the people would walk by and see the full power of Rome displayed in, in, in their crucifixion. And also so they could hear anything said by that individual on the cross and they could heap insults upon him, which is actually what they began to do to Jesus. Matthew 27 verse 38 says, two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were gonna destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of, the, of, of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus is hung between two criminals that we uh, believe are, are part of the gang with Barabbas who was released. Jesus has taken Barabbas' place and there are these you know, two guys on both sides of him. Everybody else has, has left him. He's been denied, he's been betrayed. People have run from him, he's left alone and mocked by everybody that comes by. And as bad as that is, it's gonna get even more lonely. Matthew 27, verse 45 says, from noon to three, the whole earth was dark. Around mid-afternoon, Jesus groaned out of the depths, crying loudly, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Notice the distance in his voice. Normally he says, Father, or Abba, but now he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's referring to this separation feeling when when, when he said, could this cup pass from me? Drinking this experience of being rejected by his father. You see, what's going on here is the result of our sin. Sin is not something that God just politely frowns upon. It's, it's something he hates because it is so distant from him 
and it is so disobedient to him and he knows what it does to our lives and to his creation. And that's why for centuries people have been practicing sacrifices as a God-given way to make up for their sin because God said something has to die to pay for your sin. And over centuries, all of these animals have been sacrificed to appease the side of God's wrath. But it was never enough because it needed to be someone who died who didn't have sin of their own. An individual, a person who could die for the sins of others. I want you to think about the imagery of what's going on here. It's Passover week and so lambs are being sacrificed all over the city. And the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice is being slain outside the city. Jesus even met Passover requirements for the Lamb. He was without sin, so he was spotless. Even in his crucifixion, no bones were broken. Oddly enough, the criminals to his right and left, they broke their legs to speed up the death process. But with Jesus, they placed a spear in his side to make sure that he was dead. And in this process, he has become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But in doing that, he absorbed all of our sins so much that when his father looked at him, he no longer saw his son, he saw our sin. And he turns his back on him. And Jesus is feeling deserted by his father. And Jesus is completely alone. Matthew 27, verse 47. Some bystanders who heard him said, he's calling for Elijah. One of them ran and got a sponge soaked in sour wine and lifted it on a stick so he could drink. The others joked, don't be in such a hurry. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. But Jesus again, crying out loudly, breathed his last. I want you to notice the mockery going on here. Somebody offers uh, Jesus a sponge soaked with sour wine, a gesture of kindness. And then others in the crowd say, don't give it to him. Let Elijah come and give him relief. And as he's being mocked, and as he's being spat upon, as people walk by, he's completely alone. His father has even rejected him because of our sin. And after 18 hours of this ordeal, Jesus finally breathes his last. Crucifixion kills you, not just because you, you bleed out. Some people tend to think it might be from asphyxiation because it's so hard to pull up yourself to exhale that you suffocate. Or others think that perhaps Jesus died of shock. Verse 51 says, at that moment, the temple curtain was ripped in two, top to bottom. There was an earthquake and rocks were split in pieces. What's more, tombs were opened up and many bodies of believers asleep in their graves were raised. After Jesus' resurrection, they left the tombs, entered the holy city and appeared to many. The captain of the guard and those with him, when they saw the earthquake and everything else that was happening, were scared to death. They said, this has to be the son of God. This is really fascinating here because the very creator of the world dies and creation revolts. There's an earthquake, there's darkness, people coming back from the dead, walking around. It's literally a crazy scene for everybody who was in the vicinity. So much so that even a Roman soldier that helped with the execution process looks at what's going on in the world and says, this has to be the Son of God. Here's how this moment intersects with our lives. 2,000 years later and 15,000 miles away. I want to share with you three powerful, eternal realities that still hold true today as they did back in that moment. And here's the first one. Jesus chose to become sin so that we could be free from sin. Take a look at how the Apostle Paul explains this. He says, <clears throat> God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the problem with sin is that it has a side effect. 
Sin feels good. I mean, let's be honest, it feels pleasurable, but only for a moment because it carries a side effect. It carries a penalty, and the penalty of sin is death, and it only takes, you know, one sin. doesn't matter how good of a person you think you are. You've missed at least one on the test, and there's no extra credit, and 100% is required. All of us have sinned, and every day we die a little bit more. We die to, to purpose. We die to freedom. We die to love. We die to truth. We die to relationships with people and with God. We die to joy. We die to real life and eternal life. But Jesus chose to become that sin, to absorb that sin on the cross so that God could punish him rather than us. And the only way that could, that could happen is for somebody who, to live who has never sinned. And Jesus lived a perfect life, and he took our penalty so that we could be free from the penalty of sin now and forever. Here's the second reality going on here is that Jesus chose to die so that we could live. You know, we have to be careful how we talk about who killed Jesus. I mean, how do you explain mortal human beings killing their creator? How do you explain human beings driving nails into the hands of the one who set the planets into, into motion? And there's debate about who's responsible, who's to blame. Was it the religious leaders? Was it the crowd? Was it Judas? Was it Pilate? Who's to blame here? Well, let's allow Jesus to answer that one. Jesus said in John chapter 10, no one can take my life from me. I lay down my life voluntarily. In other words, absorbing the penalty for sin, it was his choice to free us from the penalty of death. And finally, here's the last eternal reality that helps us deal with loneliness. Jesus chose to walk through loneliness so that we would never walk alone. You see, even on your, your worst day, you're still in God's eyesight. You're still in God's presence. And he's with you because Jesus went through complete separation from his father so that you and I would never have to. Which means that even if your spouse leaves, you're not alone. Even if your child grows up and moves away, you're not alone. Even if you lose your job and you just feel worthless, you're not alone. Even if you feel like, you know, everybody has turned on you and, and denied you and betrayed you, you're not alone. No matter how great the loneliness you feel in your life right now, you are never truly alone because of the loneliness that Jesus walked through for you. What a gift. What a savior. What a friend. I think of this scene from the movie, The, the Passion of the Christ. I'm not going to show this scene. It's pretty graphic. But I want to show you a picture of this scene where the Roman soldier drives the nail into Jesus' hand. And what's interesting here is that's not the hand of an actor. It's actually the hand of the director of the movie. It's Mel Gibson's hand. And the point he's making is that his sin put Jesus on the cross. And so did my sin. And so did your sin. We've all gone our own way and rejected him. And every one of us needs this gift of forgiveness. And so here's my question. Have you accepted this gift? Have you decided to stop just believing that he existed? To stop just agreeing with him, to stop just feeling grateful to him, to stop riding the coattails of your parents or grandparents or your, your spouse, and to really follow him. Maybe today is the day you decide, I'm going to make Jesus the leader and forgiver of my life. And maybe today's the day the gift becomes real 
to you. In the New Testament, when people accepted this gift, they would demonstrate their acceptance by getting baptized because Jesus has commanded every person who follows him to express this commitment by submitting to baptism. In fact, it was so important. Jesus himself got baptized in the Jordan River to set an example. We visited the Jordan River. We didn't really plan this out, but as we approached the Jordan River, our tour guide said, if anybody wants to get baptized today in the Jordan River, you can do that. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe a couple people will do that. But before we left the Jordan River, everyone in our group, including me, everybody uh, submitted to baptism. For some, it was the first time, and for others, it was a renewal. But it was a powerful moment for all of us, a highlight of our trip. And I want to invite you, if you've never taken this step on your own, to do it next weekend. We're planning to do baptisms after each service on Easter weekend. I mean, what, a, what, what better way to celebrate Easter and Jesus resurrecting from the grave than to go under the water and to rise to a new life. It'll make this gift real for you. There's a card in your program that you can fill out. I'll tell you in a moment what to do with the card. We'd love to have you participate next weekend. Now, today we're going to close our, our service by celebrating this gift, the way that Jesus asked us to, by sharing communion together. Around the room, you know, in the front, in the middle, all around the room, uh, we've got communion stations where you can go and, and, and take the uh, double cup. In the bottom cup, there's a piece of bread representing Christ's body. In the top cup, some juice representing Christ's blood. Church has been doing this for 2,000 years. And we do it every weekend here, but we're going to do it in a unique way today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then, and then after I get done praying, the team's going to continue uh, singing uh, songs. And you can make your way to one of the communion stations and take the communion. Our communion's open to anyone who says yes to the gift of Jesus. You can feel free to uh, step aside and, and enjoy this moment. Uh, you can feel free to gather with family and fr or friends or your small all group and just share this moment together. If you'd like somebody to pray with you uh, during communion, we've got leaders on either end of the stage that'd be glad uh, to pray with you. If you're interested in baptism next weekend, just put that card in the... Uh, in the basket at the communion station. And so I'm going to pray, and then you're free to take communion, and then you're dismissed in the grace and forgiveness that Jesus gives, that Jesus offers to every one of us. And as you go, remember, this week you've got the opportunity to invite someone to come next weekend to hear about uh, this message of grace and forgiveness. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll receive communion and be dismissed. God, thank you for what you've done for each one of us. Thank you for the gift of your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. And in the words of that song, hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.